You are listening to Pangea Cast, the digital voice of Pangea Church in Seattle, Washington. We are a church that follows in the way of Jesus to inspire others in the way of love. Visit us in person on Sundays or online at seattlepangea.com. Yeah, we had a birthday celebration last week. We are three years in this journey together, and some of the folks in this room have been part of that for a very long time. Um, and uh, some of you are maybe stepping in for the very first time. And I want to I just say welcome, and we're so thrilled to be with you. We, uh, we're in a season of just like, I don't know, renewal, I guess. And, and so it's, it's one of those spaces right now where uh, those of us who have really given energy and um, love to this community, I think uh, we're asking some interesting questions, but we're also leaning into identity. What is it that God has in store for us as people? And like, what do we want to be? And so for, for these two weeks of the sort of opening of our school year cycle, we said, let's, let's just talk about that. And, and, and what we started last week is the series called We Are the Church. And if, if you've ever been to church before, you probably have been in a setting where church was a place that you go. And, and you go there because um, you have specific things that you want. You perhaps uh, find yourself wanting a certain kind of music or you perhaps want um, a lot of stand-up, sit-down liturgical stuff, or perhaps you you want the intellectual, like you just want someone to tell you information and because you're driven that way. And none of those things are inherently wrong. Actually, those things are awesome in and of themselves because we're each wired differently. We each have our own passions and that kind of stuff. Uh, one of the things, though, that American culture imposes on us, whether we notice it or not, that we can easily become part of a church system as individuals and never be part of an identity of community. And what we are trying to talk about is like the, the kingdom, this thing Jesus seems to have launched this, this mission in the world that Jesus seems to have launched is always collective in its identity. It is persons in community. It's not individuals who attend some community gathering. And that, that distinction is revolutionary in a world like ours. That distinction is actually fairly revolutionary in Western culture because what we have grown up with, what we know is that I'm an autonomous individual and there comes a point in my life, if I don't remain single my li- for my life, right, where I may, as an autonomous individual, join with another autonomous individual, right, and, and we have our goals, and, and somehow they start to mix, and that's really cool, and that's, you know, part of our wiring. But at the end of the day, even in these, like, clusters we call families, we can be driven by my family is really the only thing that exists. My pocket of life is really the only thing that exists. And the Christian story actually says that matters. It's beautiful. Like your own personhood, your own individual experience of the divine, your own life matters, but it matters in a greater context of other people. And so we are the churches asking like that question, like, okay, so why is it that we have this thing called church that in our heads, we associate with a place, a program, uh, an opportunity to grow personally. When in fact, in the early Christian movement, those things may have been outcomes of the reality we're talking about. But the reality we're talking about was that Jesus didn't die just for individuals. Jesus 
dies and raises to new life through resurrection for a community called the church, the gathering people of Jesus together. And so that's sort of what we've been talking about. You know, I made a silly joke. I'll make it again. It's not going to even land that well this week because you already know what I'm going to say, right? It's about like, like changing our framework from Christianity about my I-ness to Christianity about our we-ness. Yeah, and I just said that, uh-huh. And that's the skin down here, just so you know. And, 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 and that, for me, that shift from we or from me to we is a huge deal. And it's a subversive deal. It's a contrast to our culture. And, and, you know, you probably know what it's like when you're in a we space of your life. Like, just because we're individualistic as a culture, it's not like you don't know what it's like to be, like, leaning into the we. Because sometimes we do that well. Maybe you're part of a book club and it goes deep all of a sudden and someone's sharing their life with you. Or, or maybe at work, you've gotten to cluster up with these folks and you just somehow hit it off and, and you're no longer talking about computer programming or the latest trend in your market, but you're actually talking about, my mom is dying of cancer and I don't know what to do with that. So it's not as though it's individualistic, cultural people that we never experience the we, It's just that, as individualist kinds of people, that we experience the we out of a need from the I. In ancient culture, it was actually reversed. And I'm not going to even say that either of these are wrong or right, but I want us to just think about it through the lens of Christianity for a moment, because ancient culture would have been like, I'm part of a collective we, and the I sort of emerges from that, right? And so what we're doing this morning is just sort of challenging our assumptions. And, and before we get too far into challenging assumptions, can I tell you about my week really quick? It's been the worst. You know what I mean? You ever had just the worst? And I, last week was funny because, like, last week I actually shared, we, we looked at a story of Jesus. And, and in the feeding of the 5,000, maybe you remember this from last week, we looked at the story of feeding of 5,000. And, and leading up to this, it was like Jesus just had a terrible week, right? Like, like, he goes to Nazareth. You maybe remember this. He goes to Nazareth, and everyone's like, huh, homegrown boy, you don't, you don't do anything cool, right? And so Jesus is in Nazareth, his hometown, and they're like, who is this guy, the son of a carpenter? Like, who? He's, he's got nothing, you know? And so Jesus somehow, and this is a weird thing, like can't perform as many miracles in that setting. It's very bizarre, very bizarre story. And, and, and while he's in that sort of social pressure vacuum of frustration, he receives the news that his cousin, John the Baptist, has been beheaded. And in the midst of that terrible, horrible, no good, very bad week, He goes out, and he wants to get alone, and he's on a boat, and I imagine he's on a boat, like, kind of cruising, and they're cruising near the shore. Like, they're not far far into the waters, and, and, and they're just like, oh, I need to be alone on this fisher boat, fisherman boat, right? And, and, he, and he's doing that because he just needs a moment, and he notices on the shore crowds just following the boat wherever it goes. And if it's you or me, it's like, uh-uh. But Jesus, it says, has compassion, and then he tells the disciples, you feed them. To which they say, we don't have a Costco card big enough for 5,000 people. To which he says, give me what you got. And Jesus' move there is rather than do all the work himself, he empowers people with resources they would not have on their own, 
to do something incredible and feed the crowds. And we, we landed on this idea that church is about being empowered by Jesus, sometimes mediated by people like me who blah, 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 or people who lead prayer or music and all these kinds of things. But, but really, the point of these gatherings is like, how can we partner with Jesus and being mutually empowered to be something different? And Jesus had a bad week. I shared about a high school bad week I had. And then this week was actually kind of bad, and it was like, wow, that's weird, right? Um, And it was more of a high-low week. Hi, I take my awesome kiddo to kindergarten for the first time. Oh, my gosh. Um, I'd done all my crying throughout the summer, so I didn't have to cry that day. So I'm not even kidding. Like, it was ridiculously hard. So, So by that day, it was like, how can we make this like a magical morning for us, you know? And it was. Got up early. Stopped at Starbucks along the way because we're no longer so cool because we moved to Seattle that we can't drink Starbucks anymore, you know? The app has just become way too convenient for a parent. You just go pick up your order, you know? So we did that, and then, and then we went to school. We took all these pictures, and it was just like, oh, thank you, God. Like, this was a gift. And my gift continued until I got home about an hour and a half later to see my cupcake royale, cupcakes, all over the ground that was left, right? And some of you know this, right? The dogs, my two pups, ate four of them that were chocolate and cocoa-based. And so from, from high, we went to low. We eventually had to go to the dog hospital, and they had to have induced vomiting, and they had to take charcoal to absorb as much of the toxins as possible. And for all week, up until like yesterday, one dog was urinarily incontinent, if you know what I'm saying, right? So our, our house has just been a constant clean fest, and, and the other one has a medical history that's ridiculous, and I didn't know if she was going to make it. And they're wagging their tails today, so I'm pretty happy about that. Add that to just a bunch of logistical things that went wrong. And you, you, you probably are just like, oh, I've had those kind of weeks before. Where it's like high, low, high, you know. And, 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 and I was thinking about that. And what's really incredible about being a follower of Jesus, about having a network of friends in the midst of high and low weeks, is that we actually have a, a space in sort of inherently within our network to just be real about those things. You don't have to go to work and say, ah, it's all good, right? We do that at church. Oh, I'm doing fine. I'm doing great. But the truth is, like, we don't really want to do that. We just have, like, these guards up, these, these things that are really real. Like, we have shame in our lives that says you can't actually share about your terrible, horrible, no good, very bad week, right? And as we're going to see this morning... Jesus says, nah, you're a community. Like, like church isn't a program, it's a community. Christianity isn't a religion only. It is a communal religion. It is a space where, yes, there are rituals and there are things, but it is raw. It is about being gutted because it's, okay to be gutted sometimes. And it's also okay to party. 
And, and so, so that's sort of the posture. And so what I want to do, and this is going to be kind of a weird ride, so just hang with me if you would. But we're going to take a weird ride this morning. But I think we're going to see how important this is. And, and part of this message, I'm going to not lie, you're going to have to like turn on the thinking cap like to, to 11, okay? And I'm going to try to sort of walk us through why that is. And, and mostly it's not because the information is hard. It's because the information will be somewhat new, and, and what we're going to do at the end is say, how does this relate to now? So I'm going to talk about the cr- contrast of we this morning. So one of the things I've noticed, if you've noticed it, let me know, just through a smile. That in this country, we have a holiday. Maybe you've been to a party where like, things blow up. We call it Independence Day. Christianity, if it had a holiday, maybe it would be on Pentecost or something. We would call Christianity Interdependence Day, right? Because in Christianity, we need each other. There's a totally different kind of paradigm that Christianity brings. In fact, the the great thinker, sort of after the Reformation, John Wesley, there's this great quote. Check this out. This is what John Wesley had to say about this. He says, Christianity is not a religion for solitude, and solitary, the Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. That is a huge challenge to those of us, and I'm not even, I'm not making a judgment, I'm not saying, like, these people aren't followers of Jesus, or, or maybe you're in this space, and you're not a follower of Jesus. All I'm saying is that if you want all of it, community matters. You can get a lot of it from Facebook friends, maybe. You can get a lot of some of the stuff you want from good podcasts, maybe. But information without community and transformation will leave you only so far into what God desires for your life and my life. And so the contrast of we this morning, I'm going to invite us to look at Paul's letter to the Galatians. Now, the reason we're going to look at this letter is because in Paul's letter to the Galatians, we're in an interesting situation where he's having to navigate this issue. What does it mean to be we? What does it mean to be we in light of the fact that Israel's Messiah called Jesus died for the sins of the cosmos and rose from the dead three days later as a victorious king over all creation? What does that mean? And Paul, as you know, is this Jewish rabbinic kind of teacher, and he's traveling, and, and he has an interruption in his life. And we're not going to look at that. It's actually told, the story's told in Galatians chapter 1. But basically, he has this vision of Jesus, this moment with Jesus that turns him from someone who harasses and persecutes followers of Jesus to someone who decides, I'm willing to be harassed and persecuted for Jesus. His reputation is so bad that he has to sort of ease into the relationship with the Christian church in Jerusalem. He takes years of the desert. He takes moments of just like distance with other like small pockets of people. But when his mission starts, he just starts like these communities of followers, these churches throughout the Mediterranean area. And Galatia is one of these spaces. And and they are now faced with a problem. 
And the way Paul introduces this problem with this community is he tells a story about another town called, another place called Antioch. And this is what he talks about. I think it's just so important that we really anchor into this. So in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, and, and we're going to look at just a few verses here. We're going to skip ahead into the book. But this is a story, and you're going to see this name, Cephas. Cephas is just the, the, another word for Peter. Um, and so that's Peter. Uh, he's the guy at the pearly gates, you know, that lets you in or whatever. I, I don't believe that. Um, uh, the first pope or whatever. You know, you know who I'm talking about, right? The guy? Yeah, Peter. And, and, and this is what it says. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was wrong. He had people eat, he had been eating with the Gentiles, so the non-Jewish people, right? He had been eating with the Gentiles before certain people came from James. Now, James here is likely the author of the book of James, right? The letter of James, a very early document in the Christian church. And, and this James is believed to have been the biological half-brother of Jesus. So these men come from James, but when they came, he being Peter, Cephas, he began to back out and separate himself because he was afraid of the people who promoted circumcision. We'll talk about that for a moment. We'll get there. And the rest of the Jews also joined him in this hypocrisy so that even Barnabas, I mean, and, and just so you know, like Paul's guy, like he has like a few of them, but Barnabas is like one of his people, right? Even Barnabas, Paul says, like, can you believe it? Even Barnabas got carried away with them in their hypocrisy. But, when I saw that they weren't acting consistently with the truth of the gospel, the good news, I said to Cephas in front of everyone, if you, though you're a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you require the Gentiles to live like Jews? And by the way, we can't get into this rhetoric here except this, that it's not as though Peter isn't acting Jewish. It's that kind of Paul sort of like jabbing him in the side a little bit and is like, dude, like, check yourself before you wreck yourself. You know what I mean? Like, it's actually an insult. It's like, you've been acting like Gentile, aren't you, Jew, dude? Right? Because, because Paul and Peter and all these, they are thoroughly Jewish. We don't remember this because we weren't there 2,000 years ago. But, but if you go back and you look at the scholarship and you look at ancient history, the Christian movement is thoroughly Jewish for centuries. But there starts to be these um, Gentile followers that step into community. And most of Paul's letters are speaking to them very directly and bluntly talking to these non-Jewish followers of Jesus. Here's the big distinction. Jewish followers of Jesus follow the first five books of Moses. They do all the stuff. They're still getting circumcised. If they live near the temple, they're doing their prayers. They're doing all of these things, but they're filtering it through what rabbis would call a yoke or a teaching and that yoke happens to be filtered through Jesus' teaching. So, so there's some modifications that have to be made, right? I, you have heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I say, Jesus, love your, right? And, and so there's, Jesus says, there are certain things about Torah that we now have to reimagine as Jews. But they're still thoroughly Jewish. But then Peter and Paul and the apostles start to have this realization that Jesus didn't just come to save the Jewish nation, but all the nations. And so for Gentile followers of Jesus, 
Paul's passion. I mean, he gets fired up about this. We talk about circumcision. And look, I don't know. I'm not going to find out who is and isn't in this room. We do it for medical reasons. And some people are like, that's awesome. Some people think it's oppressive. I don't care what you think about it. As far as the 21st century practice, my point would be this, that for Jewish people, it is the marker that you are part of the covenant. God's grace has let you into the covenant. It's not because you have rules you must now follow. All of the rules keep you assured that you're in the community. It's not about gaining access to heaven when you die. And, and for Gentiles in the first century, Paul says, if you do that, you're going to have to follow the whole Torah. If you get circumcised in the first century, you might as well become Jewish. And here's Paul's problem with that. Paul's radical problem is a radical idea. That if the ancient prophecies of Israel are going to come true through Jesus the Messiah, there must be a visible representation of messianic, Jesus-following Jewish people who are the access and entrance for non-Jewish converts to the God of Israel. You following? And so for, for anyone to get in the way of that reality, for anyone to say, you need to become Jewish to be in our club, for Paul is like a deconstruction of Israel's ultimate hope for the whole cosmos. You can imagine why he gets a little angry in Galatians. And so you have this situation where Peter is like, oh no, like these Jewish folks aren't really sure how the rules are to be played. What do we do? I'm going to back out of this community. I, I can't be seen with these people. And the question is, why? Why? There's one thing you need to know. I've said that a lot probably. There's a lot of things you need, need to know, but we're going to keep going. In the first century, Jews have a pretty good deal, except when they're oppressed. So that's a caveat, right? <laughs> and they're oppressed quite a bit. Um, but, but one of the things that they have that no other people group has in the ancient world is this. They have, by decree of Caesar, an exemption from participating in anything that violates their faith. Fascinating, right? So, so this is actually in the history books. This is something you can dig up. It's in Josephus like four times. Like, like it, is, it is just kind of common knowledge in the first century. If you are Jewish, you don't have to worship the Caesars. You don't have to worship Roma or Pax or any of the other gods. Just do something to represent your allegiance to Caesar. And so what they come up with is that the Jews in the ancient world come up with this collection from their tithes. And what they do is they pay tribute to Caesar by actually doing a sacrifice in a Jewish way at their temple. And they do this on behalf as a prayer for Caesar rather than the worship of Caesar like every other people group does. You follow? Jewish people are the only ones who have that right in the ancient world. That's it. If you are part of a Jewish pocket of followers of Jesus, you still have that exemption. You have not changed religions. Let's, let's remember that for a moment. You are just a sect. There are Sadducees, there are Pharisees, and now there are Messianics, right? And you are following Messiah Jesus as a Jew. 
what do you do when all of these people who are not afforded the same opportunities want in the family? What do you do when they have a certain kind of privilege? Many of them, some of them are Roman citizens. They have a kind of privilege, but they want to be followers of Jesus. And that is mediated through the Jewish kind of movement of Jesus, right? What do you do with them? Because they don't have that exemption. Are they to follow the gods of the empire and Jesus? Over and over in the New Testament, it's like, absolutely not. Absolutely not. With that as our framework, go back to that table. Why does Peter back away? It is highly possible that he backs away because by intermingling and mixing with these folks that don't have that exemption and are are trying to act Jewish and those who do, and, and by doing this sort of mixture thing, here's the problem. What if the authorities start to notice a shift here? And what if our protection is no longer a good protection. And I just realized we're talking about a particular body part, and that's very weird sort of language to use. And so Peter backs away. Have you ever stepped away from someone that you were in community with because there were things about them that were hard? Have you ever stepped away from someone in community, or, and not even like all the way, like, I hate you, I'm not your friend, just kind of like step back a few places Maybe you've been ghosted or ghosted someone relationally, you know, where you just sort of like disappear. See, all of those are temptations in the first century. And, and what they're showing us and why Paul is so fired up is you're going to deconstruct what God's vision for the cosmos has always been. That's a big deal. And you don't know what community is if you do this. You don't know what we is about if you do this. We are the church. Because at the foundational level, the church is called to be a contrast society. Are we tracking so far? Are we tracking? And, and I know we're, we're going some weird places. I, I just need you to keep coming with me. We're going to be, you know, about 10-ish minutes, and we're going to come on the other side, and you're going to say, oh, that was neat, okay? And that, hopefully, or that was terrible. It's up to you, but uh, that's where we're headed. And so contrast to society. Why does we matter? Because we're invited to be different. And no, we're not called to be different because, you know, rage against the machine fires us up when we want to go lift weights, you know? We're not called to be different because, like, we, we just think, you know, I'm an, I'm, I want to express myself or whatever. We're called to be different because the health and healing and hope of the world hinges on it. The way of Jesus, if it is not a contrast, isn't good news. Oh, and it's so hard to figure out how to apply that 2,000 years later, isn't it? But one place I think we can start is saying, we before me. It keeps going. I mean, this is wild stuff, and um, I just think it's utterly fascinating. So like a couple of chapters later, Paul now is taking this sort of story about Antioch, right, where Peter backs away, and he has to get confronted. I mean, can you imagine St. Peter being wrong, right? You know what I mean? Like St. Peter is wrong. 
And then you're like, oh, yeah, in the Gospels, uh, like 5,000 times he was wrong. Um, so it makes sense a little bit. But, like, like it's just really fascinating. And, and what you have now is, like, this story that Paul tells about community gone wrong, about separating out of fear. And, and, and then Paul is going to go now and say, look, I know some of you Gentiles, some of you non-Jewish people are tempted right now. Like, maybe Peter had a point. Like, maybe if we just, like, as a matter of practicality, went through sort of the proselytization ritual, in other words, the the visible way through which you become known as Jewish, maybe if we just did the circumcision right and actually became Jewish, I mean, we're basically Jewish anyway. We follow Jewish Messiah. We follow the God of Israel. Maybe if we did that, we wouldn't be at risk for persecution and harassment. Because we don't have the protections, and now our lack of protections, maybe it is actually affecting our Jewish sisters and brothers. And so throughout this letter, Paul's like, don't let yourself be circumcised. He's not talking to Jewish people. He's talking to non-Jewish people. And here's how we know, by the way, people get this all mixed up all the time. And I'm just like, just think, just think a little bit about it. If, they, if this applied to Jewish people, isn't it odd that you're already circumcised and Paul would be saying this to you. Think about this for a moment. Jewish babies are circumcised on the eighth day of their life. His instructions about being circumcised have nothing to do with Jewish people. It'd be irrational, right? Like, hey, hey, why would you let yourself get circumcised? Well, Paul, I was part of this procedure when I was a baby. I didn't know about it, but I'm pretty sure it's how I got into the family of Israel. Right, like, like, it makes no sense. So, so Paul is thoroughly concerned about these non-Jewish people wanting to become Jewish so that they have the protection and, and safety of the Jewish people. And so you get to chapter four, and this is what Paul has to say. He says, look, formerly, this is verse eight of chapter four, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to things that are by nature not gods. The pagan idols, the rhythms of the, the empire, all of that stuff. Now, however, that you have come to know God, or rather, ha- or rather to be known by God, how can you turn your back against the weak? <laughs> I'm totally not reading well today. How can you turn back again to the weak and beggarly elemental spirits? How can you want to be enslaved to them again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid that my work for you may have been wasted. I want us to remember that we're talking to Gentiles again. This won't be really helpful, I think. Because there's another temptation in Galatia. Become Jewish, and maybe Rome won't notice that you converted to Judaism, and you're just Jewish, and that's all good. Safe. The other temptation is, you know, yes, I'm thoroughly committed to Jesus. I believe that, but you know what? Like, I've got to figure out how to feed my family. I've got to make sure we're safe. And so, so when there's a, a celebration or when there's these rituals, in my heart, I don't believe them, but I'm going to sort of walk through them just to kind of appease the problem. And, and, and Paul here is like, ah, oh, why would you do that? You're, you're becoming a slave to something that you've been freed from. 
And you're reading this and you're probably like, but isn't that a Jewish calendar, right? Like, isn't that what they must have thought? But again, like, like, how would you not know God and then come to know God and return to not knowing God and be tempted by the Jewish calendar? Like, again, the logic isn't quite there. So, so what kind of calendar are we talking about here? Well, here's a grid that you won't be able to read because it's way too small. Um, but what this grid represents is the liturgical calendar of Rome. So just like ancient Jews had a rhythm to how their worship cycle went. They had all of these festivals, they had all these things they would do, all of this worship they would do. So also people in the Roman Empire had a cycle of worship that they had to engage with as an act of obedience to the state. And this is that calendar. And there's all kinds of weird stuff, right? August 19th, on this day, Caesar entered his first consulship. Awesome, right? Uh, on the 22nd of September, on this day, uh, Lipidus, uh, his army went over to Caesar. And, uh, okay, yay, good job, Caesar, right? And so you have a celebration on the 23rd, the very next day. It's the birthday of Caesar. It's a big deal, right? Sacrifice something, right? And so every year, your year was oriented around the Roman gods and specifically the emperor himself. And Paul steps in and says, if you go back to that, that's demonic. So what do we do? I think they're in a rock and a hard place. You ever been in a rock and a hard place? It's like, if I do this, the outcome just sucks, you know? And if I do this, it's just awful. But if I do what I know I'm supposed to do, it's also going to be pretty awful, except I'll have some integrity. Maybe, maybe one of those will be less awful. You follow? So what do we do? What do we do? If we're called to be a contrast, Paul says, you can't take the easy outs. And your contrast may even be through suffering. Oh, man. Here's where it meets the road here a little bit. Chapter 5, check this out. Chapter 5, verse 1, it says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Listen, I, Paul, am telling you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, you Gentiles, if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Why? Because you're trying to enter the covenant through the Jewish way. Once again, I testify to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obliged to obey the entire law. You who want to be justified by the law have cut yourselves off from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Don't take the safe path. The safe path isn't a contrast at all. Take the hard path. Those of you who are worried about these protections, those of you who are worried about what's this dynamic going to create as we try and be Jewish people and Gentile people worshiping the same God, like are they like us Jewish people, we're going to get into the mess that they're in and we like our protections. We like just, here, once a year or whatever it is, we're going to do our thing for Caesar. And they're like, we've been doing the Caesar calendar thing our entire lives and you're asking us to give that up? Do you know what the cost of that is? And Paul and the apostles in the spirit of Jesus say, we are asking you both to sacrifice. 
the contrast is at risk here. I want to tease this out a little bit as we close. Maybe you've seen this image in the last couple of weeks. Colin Kaepernick, believe in something even if it means sacrificing everything. I don't know how that hits you. I don't know if it raises political stuff within you that's either negative or positive. Um, I don't really have like a political card in the game. I have a Jesus card in the game. And what I've learned from Jesus is that I want to listen to people who don't have the same privileges afforded that I have and not decide how right or wrong they must be based on my whiteness, my privilegedness, my um, Roman imperial citizenshipness, if I were to metaphorically put it some other way. But it's interesting because you may remember what happened. In May, the NFL said, this is not going to happen. The kneeling on the field can't happen anymore. They made a policy statement about it, that people would be fined. And what they could do during the national anthem, they can't kneel, they can't protest, but they can go to their locker room and be quiet. Now, if you think of the church in Galatia, all kinds of things make sense here. And by the way, there are some people still kneeling, some people still throwing a fist in the air, and some people going to their locker room. And some people probably in solidarity, but saying, you know what? In this season of my life, I'm just going to stand here even if I'm uncomfortable with it. I'm going to try and just tease out those two storylines. And I'm going to try and do it in a way that I hope you hear me saying, this is not a judgment on any of those choices because I am not those people. But metaphorically, I think it'll connect some dots for us about the contrast that Paul has in mind in Galatia. Because again, option one, right, become Jewish. We might call this the exemption. Become Jewish. You're exempt from whatever's going on. So if you have a conviction about the whole um, kneeling thing, and you have a conviction about the way in which uh, police brutality and, and marginalization of black folks and all that stuff, if you have a strong conviction and you don't want to participate in the national anthem, you don't have to just go to your locker room. You're exempt. You don't have to do it. Just don't make a fuss about it. You're protected. Just go over there. Yeah, you Jewish folks, you're fine. Just don't make a fuss about it. Do something nice for Caesar every once in a while. You're fine. Some people in the Christian community wanted them all to embrace that. You might go to the next place, and again, very fascinating kind of thought, right? But join in the festivities of the imperial calendar. So we're not going to do the Jewish thing. So we're just going to like appease the empire a little bit, but we really are into Jesus. And perhaps we might call this option compromise. And this is where I want to be very, safe, uh, very like careful not to judge because analogies break down at some point because we don't know the motives of anyone on that field. But if we were just going to play with the metaphor, we might imagine a situation where maybe someone has a conviction about whether uh, this is an important movie, um, movement or not, but instead of kneeling, because they have other motives, other things they got to deal with, they're going to be in solidarity silently and just stand there, but be upset that they're standing there. They're going to participate in the ritual that they have a problem with, but deep down inside, they actually have an allegiance elsewhere to the cause. And Paul's like, no, 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 that's not an option either. For Paul... For the earliest Christians, 
the contrast was so important that it was something that could cost your life. Option three, of course, follow Jesus as a community of Gentiles, no matter the social shame or possible persecution. Contrast. Take a knee no matter the cost. Throw up a fist no matter the cost. Again, I don't want to say what anyone should or shouldn't do. I'm simply sort of drawing out like this stuff applies. Like there's all kinds of storylines that we can imagine that like make sense, like the place that the early church is in. And so all I wanted to say this morning was this, that a church that is a Jesus-looking contrast is committed to we, not just me. A church that is committed to contrast says, I'm going to do whatever it takes to commit myself to other people on the journey. I'm going to invest in their flourishing. I'm going to sacrifice for their flourishing. And I'm going to love them because their flourishing is actually my flourishing. Their enjoyment and satisfaction in life is my enjoyment and satisfaction in life. And their pain is my pain. Their persecution is my persecution. Their suffering is my suffering. Because it is about we. I have a hunch that most of us in this room desire to be part of we, but are perhaps sometimes afraid to really step into what that means. It means sharing the junk with other people that you don't usually share. It means being able to receive the stuff from other people that you don't really want to always bear. It means bearing burdens, bearing the struggle, but it also means so many other great things as well. Like it means investing in each other, watching each other make leaps and bounds in your spiritual journeys together, connecting with God more. And here's the bottom line, what's so great, like if we really capture the vision of community that was being compromised in Galatia and is often compromised in American culture, here's the outcome. You and I together become more and more fully human because we know what full humanity looks like and his name is Jesus. And there is nothing more satisfying than that. May we commit our lives to the contrast.